Hello and welcome to episode 23 of On Liberty, coming to you live from the Center for Independent Studies in Sydney, Australia. I'm your host, Salvatore Babonis, and joining me today is Greg Lindsay, AO, founder of the Center for Independent Studies. I'll be talking to Greg about how he parlayed a timeless idea, in the words of Friedrich Hayek, quote, to make the philosophic foundations of a free society once more a living intellectual issue into Australia's most important think tank. Greg Lindsay, how are you? I just find Salvatore, it's good to be involved in this. Oh, we're thrilled to have you involved in this. And the one thing I want to know, and that really I find so daunting to think about, what led you to leave a, you know, a comfortable position as a mathematics teacher to become an intellectual entrepreneur? Well, I, well, I was a child of the 60s, and in that era, it was a time when uh, people my age, anyway, were, were driven to think about the way the world was working and whether it was satisfactory. Australia had had uh, one government, at least one party in government, for 23 years, and I wondered if a lot of what they were doing was, in fact, how it ought to be. I went to university originally to study agriculture, and oh, yeah. uh, that didn't quite work out, so I ended up being a math teacher, and even then, whilst I enjoyed teaching, I had there were other things in my mind, and um, I came up with this particular idea for an institution that could marshal people and ideas to, to support the sorts of things I thought were important. Um, and 40 odd years later, well, we're here. <laughs> well, let me, let me say a quick hello, uh, Elizabeth, Christopher, Gay, uh, Stephen, Courtney, a lot of them sending good wishes to you. Uh, I was interested to hear you say that you uh, originally were in, wanting this to go into agriculture. I know you're on the farm right now. It took you a while to get back there. But those yeah. are two risky careers, agriculture and think tanks. <laughs> so how is it possible <laughs> that you made a success of running a think tank? I mean, how do you raise the money? How did you get started? Well... I, I, at the end of 1975, which was when the, the Whitlam era in, in politics in Australia, which uh, Whitlam government was elected in 1972, that era was a period of turmoil and change. A lot of it good, a lot of it I thought was a bit, um, there must be a better way, I thought. And in any case, I, I started teaching in 1975, went to the United States actually to visit friends in our school holidays that year and I'd also been writing to some people who who were involved in think tanks and at that stage I was thinking of starting a, a school actually a private school oh okay. um but once I once I sort of looked at this uh, the world I thought maybe the palette that I was going to paint on was rather larger and then I started thinking it through and by 1976 I'd sort of formulated what I wanted to do, and uh, but I was still teaching. Uh, I enjoyed teaching, uh, but this thing was taking over my life. Right. We, now, we have well wishes from Anthony as well. Uh, I've heard stories from colleagues here at the Center for Independent Studies about this mythical space above Uncle Pete's toys in St. Leonard's that they've actually been to. But was there really a shed in Pennant Hills? There was really a shed in Pennant Hills. Um, I was living there at the time with a, a couple of friends who uh, are still friends. In fact, they were living in, in the United States until recently and after many years and have moved back to Sydney. So we've seen them since they've been back. 
um, and uh, they're married, and um, the shed was in the backyard. And so when you start an institution, you need an office, don't you? Uh, so it was a little two-room shed, which we did up a bit, and that's for, from between 1976 and uh, 1980 when we moved to Uncle Pete. Uh, that was our office. Now, I'm really intrigued by this because, of course, you started that business in a shed at the same time that Bill Gates uh, started a, uh, not Bill Gates, uh, that Bill Gates started a business, but also that Apple was started in a garage in, in Cupertino. Uh, I mean, they, of course, became billionaires from their shed, garage yeah. businesses, but there's no upside to being an intellectual entrepreneur, to, to being in the think tank world. So, I mean, how did you justify taking that risk that you're leaving a paying job to go into something that is very chancy, but doesn't have any big monetary payoff like starting your own company could have? Well, most people who start companies don't succeed. So um, that's one thing. Actually, the other the other outfit that started in the shed, I think, was Hewlett Packard. So, right, the first um, one. But anyway... Uh, we're young, and I was like, I was 26 when I started CIS. There are things you just got to do, and and you know, I had an entrepreneurial flair. I tended to start things. I was able to get people to work with me, um, persuade them of what I wanted to do, and they 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 said, okay, we'll we'll back it. Um, and as you asked a question about earlier about raising money, well, I had I had none. I sort of prevailed on a few friends at the time. And uh, at the time, I made more friends, and I was able to persuade them this was a good idea, and they agreed with me. You know, I'm really kind of amazed, because I hadn't done the arithmetic. Obviously, you're not 150 years old now, which means if you started CIS more than 40 years ago, you must have been pretty young. But 26, I mean, at 26 years old, you were asking people to give you money to start this intellectual endeavor. You were meeting people like you know, Milton Friedman and, uh, you know, Nobel Prize winning economists. Well, I mean, that was really later. strange. Yeah. Well, um, uh, fortunately I was working and uh, I, uh, it, it was growing to the point where we had a, a couple of conferences that got quite successful, that were successful. Um, there was one in 1978 at uh, Macquarie University, where I'd been a student, because uh, I went back to university to, to do something other than mathematics. And um, uh, we ran this conference, and the then economics editor of the Financial Review, Paddy McGuinness, who until he passed away, remained a lifelong friend, wrote a, an amazing article um, with the headline, in the, a full-page article in the, in the paper called Where Friedman is a Pinko. And... <laughs> And why um, that would take too long to explain, but the fact of the matter was it's got a lot of attention. And when I got attention, I started to get people contacting me. I mean, I was sharing this house, as I said, in Pennant Hills, and I went off to work to teaching, and then the phone started ringing because Patty had put the phone number in the, in the article, and one of my, my friends was living there. She, she uh, until she had to go to work, and she was a teacher as well, uh, took an hour of phone calls until she had to go. So, oh, wow. But, um, then, you know, it took a while, and by the end of 78, I realized that it was growing to a point that I needed to focus my attention on it full-time. So I took leave without pay from my job for 12 months um, as a teacher. And uh, by the end of that 
this is during 79, by the end of that year, um, we got enough money to pay me, not very much, but you know, not like uh, not like Bill Gates or, <laughs> or Apple or anyone like that, but uh, it was enough to sort of say there's a bit of institutional strength here. The other key thing was that my wife, Jenny, uh, and we've been married for a long time, um, we, she entered the scene then and she was working, so uh, that helped, honestly, as well as support from some key individuals. Right. Well, I mean, I'd really love to get Jenny on this program in a future episode. So I'll talk to the producers about that. I'm sure we get fantastic stories out of her. Uh, look, who are some of those early intellectual leaders you brought to Australia to speak at CIS? Well, the important thing, too, is to realize that there were some in Australia who were also important. And, um, and most of them didn't have a sort of home to go to, to publish or to speak and so forth. And I thought one of the early successes um, at the time was um, giving, giving these people a home. Right. Uh, and, you know, I could give you a list, but that would take a long time. As, give us, as, give as us a couple of we moved, we moved to Penn and, uh, from Pennant Hills in 1980 to the office above Uncle Pete's Toys. And uh, uh, Peter Piggott, who owned it, and Neville Kennard, his partner, who was my then chairman, uh, were able to find me some space uh, to, to, to have our office. Uh, the early days of bringing people out, yes, we did. We, whilst we didn't bring Milton Friedman out initially, he, he was brought, had been to Australia in 1975 and came again in 1983, I think, or was it 81, anyway. Uh, and we held an event, which was, you, know, you can imagine, attended. And that's also introduced me, or I'd already been involved with an international organization of which Friedman and Hayek and others were members called the Montpellier Society. And that organization was a very critical thing, at least personally and uh, professionally, in introducing ideas and people to me. And I, went, I was still teaching I went to my first meeting in 1978 in Hong Kong. Can't, probably can't do it these days. And my, the headmaster of my school was an economist. And when he saw the program, which included Nobel laureates of like there were four I think on the program he said yeah you better go and I, he gave me the time off so that was, that was a critical thing um, and uh, and has been uh, ever since. Now, how did you get so involved? Because you've been is it president or chairman of the Mount Pelerin Society? Yeah, in the yeah. past, and I know, was I was elected president in nine, uh, 2006 in Guatemala. And so the position is it's a two year thing, and I, I relinquished it to Deepak Lal. British Indian economist in 2008 in Tokyo. So we're talking Friedrich Hayek, Milton Friedman, Deepak Lal, Greg Lindsay (laughs) in the same same breath. Uh, You must be the only Australian, I'm guessing, who's ever served as president of the color. No, not really, actually. Um, uh, There were two other Australians, both of whom worked overseas for most of their lives, but always uh, maintained their Australian citizenship, or one was Max Harpel, the economic historian, who actually wrote the history of the society, and the other was the great uh, political theorist, um, Ken Minogue. Whilst Ken was born in New Zealand, he, he came to Australia as a teenager and did all his education here and then taught at the London School of Economics for most of his life. Right. Now, there are other think tanks in the world, and certainly in Australia. Some of them have you know, mega funding from one big donor who gives them money. 
I'm really, I've really been impressed with CIS even before I got involved with it, that it's a scrappy think tank that seems to, you know, well, that does not take government funds, but also doesn't have one billionaire who just writes a check uh, to fund it. I, I mean, how did you turn CIS from this little operation above a storefront into, you know, one of the major voices in Australian policy debates? Um funding thing is always a puzzle to a lot of outsiders. Uh, you, you're quite right, we didn't have any billionaires pouring in cash, we didn't have the government pouring in cash, but we certainly had a lot of individuals who, who were passionate about the ideas and were willing to, to kick in some support. But we also want, wanted to be totally independent of our supporters. Now, people who who contribute to the organisation do it on an untied basis. We don't do any commission work for anybody. Um, we certainly, if there was an issue we wanted to pursue, we weren't shy of trying to find people who might want to support it. But if we weren't independent, then the value of the work may be compromised. And frankly, in the 40 odd years that CIS has been going, no one, except those that really don't like us very much, uh, no one has questioned the quality of the work um, and, you know, it's not only a matter of just writing a paper and publishing it, it goes through quite a process. Uh, as anyone who's written, probably even including you, realises that uh, we want to make sure that every T is dotted and reference is checked and so forth. So the independence both of the, both from the support base and, and the, those who are involved in terms of producing the quality that we need is was critical to the survival of the organization. Right. Well, it is called the Center for Independent Studies for a reason. And, and frankly, I didn't realize that when I first got involved. It's really rare for a think tank to be independent of a major sponsor and of government support. I mean, I can't really think of any in Australia that are independent other than CIS. Is it that independence that you think makes CIS an important think tank? That is, why does Australia need CIS when it has all these other think tanks as well? Um, I think that's exactly right, um, because we can speak um, without you know, fear or favour, uh, because if we, you know, we're not going to, you know, if the billionaire doesn't like what you're doing, he or she might go off somewhere else. Well, that's not the position I ever wanted to be in. I mean, frankly, if a billionaire wanted to give us some money, I'm sure CIS would take it. Uh, but under the same rules as anybody else, um, because uh, one of the things that organisations like this um, are always under pressure for is support. I mean, we don't have the taxpayer funding us. We we have to compete in the market for, for good minds. I mean, uh, the key to the organisation is good people writing good stuff, but they have to have a career. Um, you know, some might only want to work for a little while, and, and that often happens, but others we've been able to give a lengthy career period, uh, time to, and that's, that's one of the critical things about the um, uh, building that institutional uh, gravitas that we need. So. Now, regular viewers of this show will know that I'm a big fan of Ruth Smith's liberty and liberalism. Uh, I, I'm going to confront you with a quote from this, but first just tell us, how did this book come to be published by the Center for Independent Studies, or republished? Well, I, I mentioned earlier that I went back to university and I was studying philosophy, uh, uh, and I was just going through the library 
at the university at Macquarie, whenever it was, and I came across this leather-bound, I think it was leather-bound, anyway, old book by Bruce Smith called Liberty and Liberalism. And then I looked inside it, and it, I can't remember exactly what it said, but it, but the, the, it was signed T.H. Cooley. Now, Tom Cooley, we knew quite well. In fact, he had, for, for, for a short period, was on our um, advisory council. He, he, was a, he was a historian of the Australian welfare system, really, but he was an old-fashioned liberal in the sense that we're talking about here, at least in the sense that Bruce Smith is. So I thought, ah, oh, that's interesting. So as we got larger, um, there came a point, I always had this idea of reprinting classics that no one ever saw. Um, we printed an essay by a philosopher at Sydney University, John Anderson, called The Servile State, not across the Hilaire Block one, but he wrote this little essay and I got to publish that. Then the Bruce Smith one, um, when we got to the point where we could do it, we, um, we, started, <laughs> we started scanning it and then we found out that the Liberty Fund in America had already got some of the text and it was available online. So we were able to um, not shortcut things completely. Um, Smith was an, an, an unusual guy, was a politician, he was a businessman, and obviously he could write. He was a follower of the, follower of the particularly the British liberals like Spencer and John Stuart Mill and so forth. So, and I thought it was important to get it back into print. Yeah. Well, I'm going to read you a quote. I'm not going to read it from the books. I'm not wearing my reading glasses. I'll read it from my printout. Uh, on page 169, Smith says that true, in true liberalism, all men are equal, not in wealth or position or ability, but, and he emphasizes this, in the eye of the law. Is that what true liberalism means to you? Yep. <laughs> and what does that mean for CIS? I mean, it, it, you know, when you set CIS out on this course to be a, a liberal think tank, people often say, does that mean a libertarian think tank? Does that mean a liberal party think tank? What does truly liberal mean for you? Well, look, back when I was thinking about these things at that formative stage, um, I was certainly influenced by the American libertarians. Um, and the Austrian School of, of Economics, which is where Paddy McGuinness got that, because uh, the Austrians think that uh, Milton Friedman, this is Hayek and others, uh, that Friedman was an interventionist. You see, that's why Friedman is a pinko. Um, <laughs> although maybe in your you do understand the pinko term. That's by the way. Anyway, so well, so that yes, that, that 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 libertarian thinking certainly had influence on me then. Um, by the time we got, went on, I started to read and become rather familiar with some of the broader uh, classical liberal. People tend to use that now to say confusing with Liberal Party or American liberals, like, well, nobody liberal that I know, uh, and so on. So um, true liberal, as described by Smith, uh, would be the sort of, look, CIS are not especially dogmatic, at least, I mean, I'm not the boss anymore, so... I, you know, I'm, I'm maybe I'm taking liberties here, but the way the way I set it up is it's not going to be dogmatic. He wants to test things and argue things. I mean, in a true liberal society, there are important institutions, and the rule of law, as Smith was saying, there is one of the key ones, being equal before the law. But there are other things too, private property and so forth. And you know, 
people's the way people behave, you know, is not the responsibility of the state or anyone else to tell them how to do it. But what we want to be able to do is have a society where people can do the things they want, look after the people they're responsible for, which is family. So CIS did a lot of work on the family mm-hmm. and uh, about the importance of, um, of um, civil society, the, the sort of little platoons that Edmund Burke and subsequently Charles Murray have called about the, how we deal with problems ourselves rather than having to re- resort to the state to do it. That's the sort of society I think is a healthy one. And whilst, it, whilst there are certainly functions for the state at the moment, um, well, maybe the moment's not a bad time. It's not a good time to talk about it, but <laughs> but there are too many things the state is doing which we should uh, examine carefully, and I guess that's what we were doing all, all, all this time. Right. Now, we're about to go to questions, but, you know, I, I regular viewers will know that I can't hold a copy of Liberty and Liberalism <laughs> in my hands without trying to give it away. Uh, so if you are considering becoming a member of the Center for Independent Studies, please do consider the $250 membership level at which I will send you a personally signed copy of Liberty and Liberalism. Of course, we'd also love to have you as a $40 basic member. If you're already a basic member and you want to go to that $250 support level, just let them know you did it because of this pitch. And I will, again, send you a signed copy of liberty and liberalism that's signed by me, me, not signed by Bruce Smith, who sadly is no longer signing books. Uh, We're also just approaching 25,000 subscribers on our YouTube channel. Having subscribers does really help us get more viewers. Essentially, more subscribers means YouTube knows we're popular and it feeds our videos to more people, not just to you, but to other people as well. So if you're not already a subscriber, please do subscribe hit the like button on the video. I see we have some 50 people watching at this very moment, but only 11 have so far liked the video. Uh, If you like the video, please do click the like button, thumbs up, and uh, give us your support there. Most of all, thank you to our existing members who are here supporting the show. It really makes a difference for everyone here at the Center for Independent Studies. I'm going to go to questions now. Uh, Anthony is asking us, Greg, was the teaching profession as leftist in political orientation as it is today, back when you were teaching in the 1970s? Um, interesting question. I'd say no, uh, but then again, I taught in a, the mathematics department, and there's not a there's not a hotbed of radical whatever in that in that department. Having said that. I think the union representative was in, in my staff room and he and I got on fine even even though I wasn't a member of the union. So the short answer is I think, I don't think it's as, as good as it once was. Um, you, know, you think about when you went back to school, uh, back to your own school days and someone of my age, I can't remember a teacher ever having a political st- a political uh, uh, view that it was passed across to the kids in the, in the classes. So, so from 75 to 78 to now, I think things have changed. Uh, most most people aren't radical. They just want to do their job. But the trouble is there are others there who who have other views of what, uh, how things ought to be and they can often o- overtake um, the, the, the professionalism of others who just want to just do their job. And, you know, it, it, because it's because it's highly unionised and so forth and, and it was perhaps less of an issue here because of the large number of, private schools we have, but in you know in the United States, the teachers' unions are overwhelmingly can have a big political influence on on, on particularly the Democrat Party. So, right. 
Now, uh, Adrian is watching. He says, it's great to see you. He was introduced to you in the early 1980s by board members of yep. the company where he worked. He wasn't sure what the CIS was all about, but he appreciated your passion. Well, Adrian, I hope you will. I uh, hope you're already a member. And if you're not, please do join us now. You can find all about what the CIS is all about. Uh, I know who Adrian is, and I and I'm glad that we see him at CIS events every now and then. And he, yes, he was a, a good contact back back in that period, and and you know in, in other roles I've seen him since. So, uh, and I'm glad he's still interested. <laughs> now, Suresh was disappointed in the poor quality of video coming from you out on the farm, and he wants to ask, can Australia cope with the challenges of you know, the fourth industrial revolution when it has such poor internet connectivity? Uh, look, I, I think people have to be patient with the quality of the internet from where I am. We do not have, broadband, we do not have NBN broadband. It comes from a satellite called the SkyMaster satellite. Sometimes it's good, sometimes it's not. Uh, the Fourth Industrial Revolution, which of course is a terrific book by uh, Mick Slater and the other guy. Um, yes, you know, it, it's a big, it's a key, a key uh, for Australia, for a country of our size, for us to, to be a key player in the Fourth Industrial Revolution. It would be nice if uh, we could do better on, 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 um, on, on the internet. I happen to think that the NBN model is not a good one. I think that uh, if the if the government was keen to get it going, then they should have got the private sector much earlier than they're likely to, and, and we'd have a better result. But you know, it is what it is. Uh, certainly, it's, through the lockdown period, for people where we are, um, it's been a boon. Now, you know, not everyone. I mean, I, if I went ten kil kilometres down the road, I could probably have a cable. But where I am at the moment, I can't. <laughs> yeah, that reminds me. Let me throw in a question. Uh, what do you think of Klaus Schwab at the World Economic Forum? And you know, he's been a big promoter of fourth industrial revolution and, and the whole Davos idea. Um, Davos has had a lot of criticism, and um, I don't think it is attuned to the mindset of the individual in a way that a modern society needs. It, um, I mean, it, 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 but, but, you know, I've never been to the Davos meeting. We, of course, CIS ran its own sort of version of it, but quite different. And, and the criticism it's had as being um, a detached elite and uh, trying to tell everyone else what to do is, you know, partly kept. But, you know, uh, it's a free society and people can do what they like. Uh, at least I think it still is. Um, so, um, uh, as, are we better having it than not? Probably. But, you know, I think the criticism aimed at, aimed at it uh, probably uh, fair. Right. Christopher wants to know, is it harder to get support from businesses today than it was 20 or 30 years ago? <laughs> um, Look, individual private, private businesses and, and so forth run by families or individuals or whatever have, have a, a more, uh, what should we say, um, more capacity or more ability to help organisations directly. Larger corporations, they have, some, of their, some of their thinking about what organisations they support is very much focused on the bottom line. And you know what what the 
the judgment of a board or senior executives make about some issue which is contentious, say climate change or or freedom of speech or whatever it happens to be, they probably would. The short answer is I think it is harder, certainly harder for the um, for, for larger corporations to do it because there's so many other things in their way that that make it difficult for them. People often think that CIF was a business-supported organisation. It's the smallest part of our support base. Oh, really? Individual uh, and foundations are the, the predominant part of the support base of CIF. It certainly was when I was there, and I'm sure, I'm sure it's the same now. Businesses themselves, you know, they have different things they have to, to adhere to, and I think it's hard. Whereas back in 1978 or 79, you know, the... the the anti-socialist cause was the thing everyone was opposed to, so they would they would go. But you know, socialism the way it was then, we don't talk about much these days. So it's less of a thing. There's we go down to individual uh, policies and you name it. So yeah, it's harder. Well, I'll take that as a cue actually to do a second pitch because I really do believe that individuals and individual memberships are really the foundation of an organization like the Center for Independent Study. So if you're not already a member. You know, hear the plea. Uh, you know, please do become a member and become part of this uh, debate. Become a contributor to Australia's policy debates. We have thanks coming in from Suresh and Adrian, who uh, really appreciate your uh, answers to their questions. Ben wants to ask you: Can classical liberalism work in places like China, where the population of over one billion may constrain the way the nation operates? Well, that is a big question, like the population. Um, look, I'm an optimist. Uh, 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 you know, there was, a, there was a view that as China got richer, um, it would be more interested in democratic institutions and you name it. Um, I, obviously, I'm missing something about the way uh, the Chinese political system has worked following um, the liberalizations. Uh, it's also very centralised, and uh, I think that liberal societies work better when they're decentralised, um, because closer to the people, people can see what your political institutions are doing or not doing. Um, so, which is why I think Australia has been, by and large, a successful liberal democratic society because it's a federation. Um, you know, we we're seeing some sort of unusual. Um, uh, aspects of the, our federation at the moment as a result of the virus. But um, I think it's hard, but I don't think it's impossible. I think it will happen. Um, but uh, if anybody can pick what China's going to do in the next five years or 10 years, um, they're better, better at that than I am. So. <laughs> Um, let me well, you've take been that. About it. You tell me. <laughs> yeah, I got, well, you interview me over the next on Liberty. I'll give you my opinions <laughs> about China. Um, what do you think about India's liberalism? Because India, of course, is always you know the world's largest democracy. It, it's very much a robust democracy, but perhaps not as liberal as international well, politics would like. India is an interesting and strange place in many ways. I've been there a few times. Um, don't forget, it's also a sort of it's a federation of sorts. Um, so you can go from a communist-run state, as a Kerala or somewhere like one of them, or used to be, through the th to sort of very forward uh, uh, places like that are leading the world in, in technology and, and so forth. So 
they also play cricket, which I think is an important part of it. See? So uh, <laughs> uh, I think India's got a good chance. Um, at the moment, of course, the, 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 the authorities have got a lot of things on their, on their plate and there are criticisms of the, of the government. Uh, but, you know, if you can't criticise the government, what sort of free society are you? So uh, my guess is they've got a good chance. They're very entrepreneurial, They're the Indian people. And, uh, you know, just go and look through the universities in California and see how many Indians are doing high tech and you name it stuff there and then go back to the places where they do it and hopefully go back and, and, and make India. Well, it, it's an interest, very interesting and I think potentially great place. Ben likes the idea of more localism and a federation of states in China. So he's going to take that away and who knows, maybe push for that change. Uh, also, we have uh, thank yous from listeners who are just uh, you know, happy to hear you uh, on the show. We have Gay asking you about uh, National Broadband Network. Now, she's commiserating with your internet troubles, but she says even with uh, National Broadband Network, she has problems, dropouts are a problem. Do you think satellite is the way to go instead of uh, cabled broadband? Well, what you've got, you've got basically three three types. I mean, uh, we we have uh, cable of various kinds, you know, back to the uh, the old ADSL through to the modern fibre to this, that and the other. In between them, we have the mobile, mobile broadband, um, and that is developing at a rate that uh, the people who first dreamt up, uh, the NBN probably didn't appreciate. And then you get where we are at the farm. I mean, we do still have our place, or a place in Sydney, and we, we do have trouble with NBN down there too, I might say. But, but at the farm, we have to rely on the satellite. And it's, um, you know, we have tried other things uh, when we first moved here before the satellite. And, you know, uh, the satellite on the, on, on the whole has been quite good, but it does have problems. Um, so, I think that mobile broadband is going to be the future, but that's just my view. Um, the first type of cable, presumably. Uh, I mean, we just need to let the private sector get hold of it and fix it. So people don't, uh, you know, won't be forever complaining and so forth. And hopefully, um, maybe I'm just being a little bit Pollyanna-ish about this, but um, I think that's the way to go. And uh, so the mobile broadband will be the one that's going to um, Spartacus, and yes, it is Spartacus, uh, points out that liberal societies are happier and more prosperous than others, yet none of Australia's major political parties stand for liberalism, names notwithstanding. Uh, would you agree with that, that there's no yeah, major political yeah. party in Australia that's truly a, a small L liberal party? I think that's, that's exactly right. Um, you know, uh, one party or another may have policies that are more liberal. I mean, don't forget, it was the Labor Party in the in the eighties that liberalised uh, some of the economic institutions that have been so backward-looking and so stultified for for all that era where I was growing up. So you'd have to say yes, the liberal impulse is alive and well, and the arguments that people used to persuade the government at the time that these things should be done were pers were persuasive, and they did it. The, 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 the government led by John Howard and others had certainly strong liberal um, components to it and there, there were people, individually say names notwithstanding, well, you know, there, there was a sort of a, a strong, dry, in the, in the sense that Margaret Thatcher used to talk about it, 
a component of the Liberal Party in the, in the early 80s, going into, well, for a decade or more, and I think that was very, very influential, not only on the Liberal Party, but the Labor Party. I mean, CIS never, whilst, yes, people from, uh, in politics were interested in what we were doing, we, we, we tended to try and, we talked about being detached from the supporters uh, and, and so on. We also tried to be detached from the political process because if you consider the, an organisation has political interests and party political interests, then you've already put whatever percentage of the population offside anyway. So you've got to work on the ideas. Right. Now, we'll be wrapping up in just a few minutes. Uh, so if you do have a final question, please get it in now. Uh, Christopher uh, points out that the NBN is no better than the old Optus cable internet, but let's not. So there you go. Yeah. Uh, so don't worry, Greg, you're not mitching out on too much. Uh, Stephen wants to ask about cancel culture. Now, this has a, become a perennial topic here. Uh, cancel culture could impede a range of people do you think that they that people may not want to be associated with the Center for Independent Studies because being associated with the Center for Independent Studies uh, may be, you know, politically incorrect from a virtue signaling standpoint? Well, you know, there's been people for years that don't want to be associated with the Center for Independent Studies before <laughs> anyone, anyone ever thought up cancel culture. They mostly because they didn't understand what the organisation was about and what it was trying to do. This cancel culture thing, I've sort of wondered if it was a phase, and I've still persuaded it is a bit of a phase. Uh, I must confess, I'm astonished. Um, I mean, our colleague at CIS, Peter Kirk, been, he's, he's the man who's been writing so much on this, and uh, you know, he's the one to listen to because he's, he's Sarah, and and um, it's. But it is, but it is an issue at the moment, and uh, I wish it wasn't. I think it's um, making it difficult for people to. I mean, look, in just today, the the the, the film academy in America decides they, you know, the best picture's got to have other conditions to make sure it's the best picture. Well, for crying out loud, the best picture would have been a best picture. <laughs> you know? So uh, it, it's what how it's infected people. It's almost worse than the. It's a pand It's a pandemic of. Uh, it's a it's a social pandemic or a, whatever you want to call it, cultural pandemic, which has to be, uh, you know, people have to be sensitive about other people's uh, feelings and all the rest of that. Yes, but you know, uh, if you if you feel strongly about something, you've got to you've got to be out there and don't be afraid. Uh, and it is a problem for people because of employment and you name it. But we know all, we know this, and I think we just got to keep at it and persuade people this is. Uh, there's no, no way to run our society. Right. Now, we've got to start wrapping up, uh, so I'm going to give you some rapid-fire questions before we end. First, uh, May Ping Mango, do you give John Howard any credit for supporting the Hawk Keating forms? Yes. <laughs> All right. Uh, go on. No, no, elaborate a little. No, 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 no. Uh, I mean, he he and the, and the party, they're in opposition, uh, they broadly supported those liberal reforms, and so they should have. Uh, they had, they wasn't returned so easily when they were in a position to do other things when Labor wasn't supporting them. But you know that, that's politics. If uh, Anthony asks, if democracy depends on there being a civil society in which independent organizations proliferate, can China ever become a democracy when it doesn't have that kind of civil society? Uh, that's an interesting question. Um, it's look without knowing. 
how it really works in China. And my guess is that so many of the institutions that we would, of civil society that we would talk about uh, are probably state sanctioned. And, you know, there is, a, it's an interesting different tradition between the, what I might call the Anglo tradition, if you like, like sort of the United States, Australia, Britain, India, and so forth, where, you know, private small organisations spring up, then some of the others, like much of Europe too, have, has bottom, sorry, top-down uh, approaches to the way things are organised. But can China change? I, I don't know. I hope so. Um, my guess is on the ground. There's lot, you know, there's lots of various organisations that are doing stuff. Whether they're able to do it independently of the state is is the question. I don't know. All right, Gay wants to know what's next for Greg Lindsay. <laughs> uh, well, you know, I've got to be selling some cows next week. Uh, and I was looking about the hill because it was raining out there. But my other little venture since I left CIS was to start a, an annual chamber music festival, and that's still going, except this year we can't perform publicly. So uh, I'm determined to build that up. As based in our farm, and we have Australia's top musicians come out, middle of nowhere, to perform chamber music. All right. Well, anyone who is interested in <laughs> the ideas, I can assure you. Anyone looking for a cow or uh, some great music, uh, <laughs> keep an eye on that. This is our final question, Greg, uh, coming from Spartacus again. Are you positive or negative on Australia's future? I'm... Um well, I was trying to qualify it slightly, but I won't. I'm positive. Um, we, I think we'll, given what's happening at the moment, we're all learning a lot. I hope we learn, find out what the lessons are, and then um, make certain if, you know, what's best in a society like ours. A free society is best. Uh, the institutions of liberty are best for, creati for creativity, for entrepreneurship, for creating wealth, and all the rest of it. There are others who, you know, I mean, if we cannot get our economy functioning, you know, close to what it was a year ago, then there's no way we can deal with the health crisis. Um, we have to, and, you know, this is what politicians and other leaders, whether in business or, you know, wherever it happened to be, I've got to think about because um, we've got one of the best countries in the world. It's one of the it's one of the true liberal democracies, not as good as I'd like it, but it's better than most, and I want to keep it that way and improve on it. So I'm an optimist. I'm pathologically optimistic anyway. So there you go. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll join you in that. Greg Lindsay, thanks for joining us today. Thanks very much, Salvatore. It's lovely to be sort of involved, sort of. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> no, entirely our pleasure. I'd also like to thank our producer, Emily Holmes, executive producer, Max Hawk Weaver, the director of the Center for Independent Studies these days is Tom Switzer. Tom and Switzer. next week on... Uh, a great successor. So. Yeah. Next week on On Liberty, we have Gene Tunney and Rationalizing Government Regulation. Please join us then. Thanks, everyone.